This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Please open in your Bibles to the book of Acts in the New Testament, right after the four Gospels, the book of Acts. We're in a series on Acts, and uh, today we'll be in chapter 6, finishing up this chapter that we looked into a couple weeks ago. I would like to say, while you're turning there, all those of you with screen addictions, let me uh, encourage you to go to the class, but also to watch Trash Truck. If you've never seen Trash Truck, you can uh, see it on Netflix, and there's an episode on uh, phones and screens, and it will encourage you to throw away your phones, put it in the trash truck, and read a good book. If you need to find the episode, you can ask my grandson, Hunter. He knows exactly where it is, so trash truck. Acts chapter 6. We're going to begin reading in verse 8. We're going to try to look at verse 8, all the way through chapter 7. We won't read all the verses, but we'll try to cover this text. It's a narrative, and we're going to experience this a lot in Acts. But we'll read today verses 8 through the end of chapter 6 and uh, the last part of chapter 7. This is God's Word. God has given us stories, and they are helpful. Acts 6, beginning in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of Moses that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. And then he begins his speech. Goes all through chapter 7 to almost the end of it. Look over chapter 7, verse 44. We'll pick up on the end of his speech. 
Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet Isaiah says, heaven is my throne. We just heard this prophetically. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And now Stephen, verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who receive the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, stopped up their ears, and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning him, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It's a metaphor for death. He died. He was killed. He was martyred. May the Lord give us the gift of illumination. Father, we pray for that. Help us see things in your word today that will strengthen our faith and give us courage. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I think the Lord wants to encourage us not to fear opposition to gospel ministry. I think he wants us not to be afraid of opposition to gospel ministry. You may be thinking, well, the guy just died. 
Living in our culture today, a lot of Christians are scared and discouraged. In the last decade, America has rapidly become less and less Christian. Traditional morality, especially in areas of sex and gender, is being tossed overboard by our culture. There's increasing hostility to Christian ethics. It's being resolutely and legally opposed. So how should we live in these dark days? How should we respond? What can we do? If anything, a lot of Christians are asking this. They're looking for leadership. They're, they're looking for confident faith and courage. I am. They're concerned that many of the loudest voices in the church today are cowards. Believers, including our congregation, we want to stress not only that Christian ideas have the right to exist, but that they're right. We, we are saying, and we're going to say it today, we have an alternative to the decline, and we won't retreat. I think we need Stephen. Okay, I'm going to full disclosure, I got a man crush on Stephen. I think we need him because we need his example. We need to fight. We need courage. And he shows us how to speak the truth with courage. Cost him his life. But he wasn't a coward. It seems there are two common responses today among Christians that we want to avoid. One is, is preaching truth with the maximum amount of obnoxiousness and offensiveness. And the other thing we want to avoid is capitulating to the culture, to the world, to selling out to the culture so we'll be liked. We must not give in to ungodly fear. We must not panic. But we also don't want to become a political organization. And we don't want to fight like jerks because that's the way everybody else fights. Kevin DeYoung helpfully writes, we aren't the first Christians to live in trying times. Most Christians around the world and millions of Christians throughout history would likely trade their circumstances for ours. The cultural upheaval we're living through will be a means of grace, of providential grace. In other words, the Lord has brought us here for the purpose of transforming us by His grace. If it leads us to think more carefully about civil society, to contend for the truth more persuasively, to commit ourselves more fully to Jesus and his church and to grow in that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I think the Lord has good intentions. He, I think I know he has. He's promised us this in the midst of all the trouble we see. It's, it's hard to say how many Christians are killed each year for their faith. It, it depends on how you define Christian, how you categorize the circumstances of their death and how you count them. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity estimated in 
2016, 2017, that 90,000 Christians were killed. But that's, that's probably too high. But we can safely say that seven, 8,000 believers are killed. Christians are killed every year around the world for their faith in Christ. Did you know that? Did you know thousands of Christians are martyred every year? Stephen was the first, but throughout history and even today, people die for their faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor, a theologian, a writer in Germany when Adolf Hitler came to power. He was viewed as a political enemy of the state because of his views, because of his Christian views. He was against Hitler. He was against the Nazis. And during his studies in the United States, his friends tried to persuade him not to go back to Germany because they knew he would be in danger. But he refused, and he returned to Germany, his homeland, because of his commitment to lead the church and support the church. Eventually, he was arrested. He was imprisoned in a military prison in 1943. He was transferred many times to different prisons the Gestapo ran. Finally, he ended up in Flossenburg in a concentration camp. There was an English officer that knew him that was imprisoned with him. He was a prisoner of war. He wrote this, Bonhoeffer always seemed to me to spread an atmosphere of happiness and joy over the least incident and profound gratitude for the mere fact that he was alive. He was one of the very few persons I've ever met for whom God was real and always near. On Sunday, April 8th, 1945, one month exactly before the war was over, Germany surrendered. He writes, Pastor Bonhoeffer conducted a little service of worship and spoke to us in a way that went to the heart of us all. He had hardly ended his last prayer when the door opened, two civilians entered, and they said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. That had only one meeting for all the prisoners, the gallows. And we said goodbye to him. He knew he was going to die. And he, this, this officer said he took him aside and said to him, This is the end, but for me, it's the beginning of life. And the next day, he was hanged. Like Stephen, Bonhoeffer was one of many martyrs. They, they shared something in common. They had a vision of Jesus Christ. They had a vision of the reality of heaven. Gave them courage. They had, a, they had this belief that they'd spend eternity with him. For Bonhoeffer, God was real. And he was always near. And this English officer recognized that. And that's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer died for the gospel with great courage. We, we see all around us moral chaos. We see persecution arising. And our, our goal is to mount a courageous and prophetic resistance and not retreat. And I think Stephen can help us today. So let's look at this. Our text, it's a very long story. I encourage you to read the whole thing today when you get home. It, it teaches important theology. It teaches biblical truth, doctrine, sound doctrine that we need today. Luke's main point is that 
The, the gospel succeeds. Gospel ministry succeeds. The church succeeds in the midst of opposition. But significant moments in this story provide us with truth we need. I have, I have three that I've taken out of this narrative. One, Jesus is the glorious son of God incarnate. Two, he reigns in heaven. And three, he is with the people of God. Let's start with number one, Jesus is the glorious son of God incarnate. Come in human flesh. He's the glorious son of God incarnate. God's, God's purpose, what God is doing right now, and what he was doing in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7, his purpose is to change lives through the ministry of his word. You may remember we talked about this when we first were in chapter 6. His gospel, the, the cultural differences in the church were causing problems in the first part of chapter 6. And, and disunity was threatening the proclamation of the gospel in the church, the word. And so Stephen and six other men were appointed, remember, to serve tables. They, they were providing care. They were doing mercy ministry, charity for the widows. And it, it preserved the unity of the church so that gospel proclamation could continue. Now Luke is showing his readers how the, how the gospel spread from Jerusalem. We're going to leave Jerusalem now. And he's showing us how this happened, even in the midst, not of disunity in the church, but now opposition outside the church. Verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power. He was doing great wonders. He was performing signs like the apostles. But there's, there's a shift now in his role. He's, he's changed it. They had asked, the apostles had said, pick out from among you seven men of good reputation. Verse 3, full of the spirit of wisdom. So we're not surprised that he was full of grace and power. He was full of the spirit. Verse 5 said, they chose Stephen. And, and reiterate, he's a man full of faith. He's a man full of the Holy Spirit. So the seven men were all servants, but Stephen was unique. He even does great signs and wonders, like, like a, a prophet in the Old Testament or, or an apostle in the New. One commentator, David Peterson, writes, Peter's use of Joel 2 and Acts 2 indicates that the spirit of prophecy is given to all believers. The Spirit's powerful presence is experienced in a range of gifts and ministries in Acts. We need this today. Stephen's special role and enabling by the Spirit are to be viewed within that general framework. The Spirit of prophecy the Spirit is given to all believers. But he adds, it was not, however, the working of miracles that provoked opposition. They won't mind if we work miracles, but it's his teaching. That's what's going to get us in trouble. And Stephen's an example we can imitate. He had a good reputation. He was known as a man full of the Spirit. That's how we want to be known. Full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, faith, 
grace, power. God was with Stephen. Not only can he serve tables, not only does he care for widows, but he has this prophetic ministry. He's a spirit-filled believer. Verse 10, his, his opponents couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He, God gave him this. He was full of the spirit. Jesus said in Luke 21, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate before on, beforehand how to answer. Don't prepare for your defense. For I will give you a mouth. You can pray that. Lord, give me a mouth. I will give you wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Luke knows that Stephen is experiencing the fulfillment of that promise from the Lord. The way he interprets scripture in chapter 7 in his speech reveals the sacred anointing. It's filled with the Old Testament. It's a brilliant message. In our text, Luke looks at Stephen and he looks at Stephen's opponents and he compares Stephen to Moses. He is a man, Stephen is a man we are to respect. He's worthy of honor. He, he didn't violate the laws of of Moses. These, these accusers are false accusers. He is empowered by the Spirit. He's God's man. And his, his life is filled with fruits of the Spirit. It's the witnesses. They're the ones. They're lying. He is Christ-like. Even in the midst of their charges, he's being treated unjustly, but he's, he's Christ-like. He's God's man. He's a true witness. He's a spirit-filled believer. That's what we're called to do. He's an example for us. He's a model. This is how we should respond. Verse 11 says, these false witnesses instigated men who said, We've, they're lying. We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They couldn't debate him, so they just lie, falsely accuse him. Verse 12 says, they stirred up the people. They stirred up the elders, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, this council. It was the, the leaders of the Jewish people. It was intimidating. Like the apostles and like Jesus, Stephen is brought before them. And he's opposed. And these false witnesses come before him and they... They say exactly what they need to say to get him killed. And the council looks at him, verse 15, and they saw his face like the face of an angel. He, he saw the glory of God. It's like Moses on Mount Sinai when he came down, his face was shining. Stephen, his, his face looked like the face of an angel because he saw the glory of God. Of God and the Sanhedrin saw his faith and it was reflecting this glory. God was with him. He was a spiritually powerful man. 
He was, he's an example for us. Everyone that wants to trust the Lord in the midst of a culture that's going to oppose them and challenge them. Lie about them. Luke is reminding us. We, we need to get this. We need to apply these texts to our lives right now. He's telling us this story. He's reminding us that God the Son incarnate is with us through His Spirit. You can experience this fullness of the Spirit. You're going to need to. You, you can be full of grace, power, wisdom, faith. And it's going to make a difference in your life. It's going to make a difference in the church. When, when we were very small and, and struggling as a church, back in the 1800s, one of the most challenging things was trying to find a place to meet. And we should always be very thankful for this building. I'm very thankful for this building. Uh, because it, it's, it's tough on a church trying to find a place to meet. We struggled. We met a lot of different places. One time we got permission to meet at the art and architecture building on campus. Ironically, the ugliest building on the campus. We're all in agreement on that. Everybody agrees. We got permission. Someone was kind enough to say, yeah, you can meet there. And we were meeting there. And during the meeting, the University of Tennessee police came in and told us someone didn't like it and we had to go. And the policemen were very apologetic. I remember one of them saying, hey, finish your meeting. Then you got to get out of here. It was very discouraging. I confess, I was afraid. I, I just thought, we're never going to make it. That was so discouraging. I just thought, they were toast. I mean, we got the police running us out of buildings. My point is, you know what? We could have never imagined this. I would have laughed you out of the building if you'd have told me, you know, in a few years, you're going to have a building. And your church is going to grow. I could have never imagined it. And we've planted two churches. The point is, God is with his people, and he loves to do more than they can imagine. He loved, that's been the experience of so many people in this room. The opposition now that, that VFC faces at UT, our campus ministry, is very different. Our challenge back in the day was often fake Christians, false Christians. Well, that's not so much the problem now. It's, it's more a focused and determined enemy. We plan on planning a church in 2025, and, and certainly in the last 10 years, there's less support than there used to be for a new church. As we do these things, let's remember Stephen. Let's remember our history. And let's never allow fear to hinder our gospel ministry because God the Son incarnate is with his people. Like, like Jesus and the apostles, Stephen ex 
experiences this. He's arrested. He's interrogated. He goes before the Sanhedrin because he's preaching about Jesus. He loves Christ. He's seen the glory of Christ. He loves Christ. He's God the Son incarnate. We're learning about that in this text. He looks, and, and Luke isn't kidding. He looks, and he had a vision of God the Son incarnate in heaven. He'd taken on humanity to redeem the world. Stephen Wellam writes this about the person of Christ, and he's a brilliant theologian on the subject. It's important to see that the apostles present Jesus. Okay, that's what we're reading about. This is who he is. This is the person of Christ. Important to see that the apostles present Jesus within the Bible's storyline. Jesus is, the, is first the promised Messiah, David's greater son. It's all through the Old Testament, who inaugurates God's saving rule and reign. Jesus is clearly a human king, a human son of David king. Yet this human son king is not merely human. <laughs> He's standing at the right hand of God. He's also the divine son who alone does what God can do. It's important to note down in verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He prays to Jesus, God the son. The Sanhedrin is opposing this Christian movement increasingly. We've seen some opposition, but now it's getting worse and, and Stephen, now he's following this ministry of the apostles. He's, he's not an apostle, which is important, but he's, he's part of, we're not apostles, but we're part of what God is doing in advancing the gospel in the world. The, the Spirit fills Stephen first, then others. And today, he fills Christians like us. So that we can be faithful witnesses like Stephen. Stephen's an example. How to be a faithful witness for the person of Jesus Christ in the midst of opposition. This is how you trust the Spirit. This is how you have courage. He's Spirit-filled. He has character. He's Christ-like. Courage is a gift of the Spirit. He is God's man. He's a reliable witness. Don't ever, don't ever be afraid. I'll, I, I'm afraid I'll compromise. I, I'm afraid I'll renounce Christ. Don't be afraid in the moment. You'll be God's man. You'll be God's woman because you'll be filled with the Spirit. And you'll be like Stephen, a reliable witness, a faithful witness. In, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7, the high priest looks at, are these things so? Are these false accusations so? Stephen doesn't answer them. He doesn't respond to the accusations. He turns it around. It's, it's wisdom. It's brilliant. It's the, it's the power of the Spirit. This isn't a human speech. This is God's Word. He's filled with the Spirit. 
And he turns the tables on his accusers. The speech is an indictment against them. It's all scriptural. And we learn so much about Christ in it. He says in verse 52, they betrayed their Messiah, the righteous one. That's who Jesus is. That's who Christ is. God the Son incarnate. Stephen's mic drop moment is the, the stunning revelation at the end of the speech. Jesus is the Son of Man. Old Testament figure, the Messiah to come. And he is standing at the right hand of God. And he's ready to vindicate Stephen, his faithful witness. Don't, don't miss. His aim is to glorify the exalted Lord Jesus. Number two, a second theological point is Jesus reigns in heaven. Jesus reigns in heaven. Our culture is confused about a lot of things. Maybe nothing more, though, than heaven. They are confused about heaven. I'd like to submit, if you want to know what heaven is, go to the Bible. Read the Bible. We're learning this morning. There is good theology here about heaven. Sherry and I recently watched a show, and it, it, it was pretty good, but it was difficult to listen to all the nonsense. It was just nonsense. It's like American philosophy is so stupid, and it's hard to stay in your seat. I mean, I don't, I mean, you can interact sometime with philosophy that has some intelligence, but this is just stupid. And then they got to heaven, and they started talking about heaven. And heaven, you know, is a horse and someone that loves you and riding on the plains in Montana. Now, in Montana, I'm a little sympathetic to, but that's not heaven. And it was just all, okay, where are you getting this? My imagination, I mean, my, I'm getting it from nowhere. I am the source of the truth about heaven. No, no. Heaven is where Christ is. Do you remember? You can look back in chapter 1, verse 8. You remember Jesus as he's ascending into heaven. He looks at his apostles. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. That's exactly what we're reading about. Verse 9, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Well, it's a pretty amazing sight we just saw. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is in heaven. Heaven is where Christ is. He's standing at the right hand of God. 
He has authority. That's what that means. That's heaven. We learn about heaven. Down in verse, back in chapter 7, verse 42, God turned away. He gave Israel over to worship the host of heaven. They're confused about heaven. They're worshiping signs in heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You, you took up the tent of Moloch, a false god, and the star of your god, Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So he's quoting Amos, an Old Testament prophet. And his biting critique of Israel. Then in the following verses, down in verse 47, he reminds him of the purpose of the temple. And this is when we learn about heaven. Verse 47, it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High doesn't dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet Isaiah says. Heaven is my throne. So that's heaven. That's the truth about heaven. Heaven is God's throne. Jesus is standing by on the right hand side of the throne in heaven. Heaven is God's throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What's the place of my rest? Didn't my hands make all this? This little footstool, this little earth, I created it. This is the truth about heaven. It's what we we really need to be clear on. John Stott says, it is evident from Scripture itself that God's presence cannot be localized and that no building can confine him or inhabit his activity, inhibit his activity. He, if he has a home on earth, it's with his people that he lives. He has pledged himself by a solemn covenant to be their God. Therefore, According to his covenant promises, wherever they are, there he is also. His throne, heaven, is his throne. Jesus is standing at the, the right hand of God. He can't be contained in a temple, in a building made by hands. He can't be contained, and it's good news because it means he's here with us today. Finally, number three, Jesus is with the people of God. You, you see in verse 58, they, they cast him out of the city. That was what the law required for blasphemy. You go outside the camp and you are stoned. So that's what they're doing. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Luke is introducing, he comes off as a very minor character here. Clearly, he's have already got some some leadership in persecuting the church, but we're introduced to a man who'll do more for the mission of the church than anyone in history. Saul. Stephen is, is stoned to death. They cried out, verse 57, with a loud voice, stopped up their ears, they rushed at him. Verse 59, as they were stoning him, he called out, Lord, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this against him, just like Jesus did on the cross. 
He's, a, he's imitating Jesus in the way he dies. The, they're the ones accusing him. They're the ones violating the law. He's the faithful witness. Acts is the story of the new Israel. It, it comes, the new Israel comes out of the midst of the old Israel. It, it, this is the story of the birth of the church. It's powerful. In, in our text, we learn about the church. Jesus, God the Son incarnate, is with his people. He's promised to be with his people. And Stephen's speech is the truth about the old Israel. And now there's a new Israel that God is creating. And it, his speech puts the church in the context of the whole of Scripture. And it should mean something to us to be God's people, the new Israel. So, so we shouldn't fear opposition to gospel ministry. S Stephen is rejected. He is killed but in the midst of all the sadness, we're going to move into chapter 8. And the people of God, the great persecution is going to arise. And the people of God will be scattered. But everywhere they go, we're going to, this theme that, that Luke has, the, the people of God, they're scattered. In the midst of opposition, persecution, what happens? The gospel prospers. Our strategy is to be faithful to proclaiming the gospel. We, we really have bigger concerns than cultural problems like, like sin, the flesh, the devil, death and hell as a pastor concerned about the purity of the church. People are looking for alternatives to, to these forces against us and it makes perfect sense. We have a strategy. We have a strategy for renewal. We have an alternative. What we need is confident faith, courage, Christ-likeness. We need faithful churches, gospel preaching, prayer. We, we want to contend for the faith. We should make sure our church is making disciples. We should love our, our neighbors and share our faith. We should press Home, biblical truth in the public square. Truth, we should proclaim it. We should get involved in the political process. Where it's possible, we should get married and have lots of children. Our strategy is not one thing, it's many things. It's the pursuit of godliness. It's the pursuit of wisdom, of self-control. It's to be, to follow Stephen's example. Let me conclude with this quote from Desmond Howard. He's a great theologian, scholar. He's talking about the kingdom of God, the city of God. For those who are united to Jesus Christ, eternal life begins here and now, as does citizenship of the city that will one day be created by God on a renewed earth. Jesus challenges his followers to look forward in faith, to pray and work for the spread of God's rule here and now, 
They're to exercise true humility, remembering that they have been redeemed from evil only by the grace of God and, and not by their own achievements. They are to witness to an alternative worldview that promotes belief in a creator God. They're to consider themselves exiles and pilgrims in Babylon, holding lightly to this life, but living in this absurd and evil world in confident anticipation of all that God will yet do. Jesus Christ calls his followers to do this with the confident assurance that Christ will return to address every injustice. Remember Acts 1. He'll come just like he, they saw him leave. He'll come back. And he will return to address every injustice as universal judge, vindicating and punishing as appropriate. And only then with the defeat of evil will God establish new Jerusalem on a renewed earth. These disciples turned the world upside down. They turned the world upside down. And by God's grace, I think God wants to do that with his church today. Father, we pray for that, Lord. We believe we're confident, Lord, we have the solution, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe, Lord, you are at work in your church. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us courage, Lord. Fill us with the Spirit. Let us not be afraid. But Lord, give us wisdom, give us grace, give us power, fill us with your spirit. And Lord, let us make disciples and build churches for your glory alone. We thank you for your grace today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.